You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, we gather tonight to remember the Lord Jesus and to remember the death that he died about 1,990 years ago on a cross outside Jerusalem. His was a death of profound consequence, a death that revealed the great love and mercy of God, a death that also revealed the great holiness and justice of God. Because as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You know, when most people die, we cannot say that they died for any discernible reason. Yes, some war heroes may die for a cause. Some executed criminals die for the crimes that they have committed. But most deaths cannot be assigned any direct meaning like that. But Jesus' death is different. Jesus died because of human sin. He died because of my sin. He died because of your sin. Jesus died because we are fallen creatures. We are sinners by nature. We are the heirs to our rebellious first parents, Adam and Eve. Genesis 5 says that after sinning, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. That is, Adam's fallen condition was transferred to all of his heirs. That's why David in Psalm 51 says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're all sinners from the beginning of our lives. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, naturally, in our innate condition, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are born spiritually dead, severed from God, the source of all life and goodness. Friends, we are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. We deliberately rebel against God's good rule. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We each and all have done the terrible things that God has forbidden in his good word. And we each and all have failed to do the good things God has commanded us to do in his word. And friends, in our natural condition, we are wretched slaves Ephesians 2 says we are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were slaves of the flesh. We chased what looks good and what feels good and what makes us feel important. And we believe the lies that are whispered to us from the culture, and so do, in so doing, we become the unwitting pawns of Satan in his rebellion against God. And friends, because we are sinners by nature and choice, we deserve the just condemnation of a holy God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Because we're all sinners, we will die physically. Because we're all sinners, we are born dead spiritually. And more than that, Sin means that we all deserve to die eternally, which is another way the Bible talks about suffering in hell. 
Indeed, Ephesians 2 says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, that is some bad news. That is the plight of the human race. This is the greatest problem in my life and your life. It's sin. And that's why Jesus died. He who was virgin born and therefore not a sinner by nature, he who obediently lived the sinless life that you and I have failed to live, he died the death we deserve. He paid the penalty that should have fallen on us forever in hell. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that is what we remember tonight. But as we do so, we must not simply sit here and think about this in abstract theological terms. Friends, each of us needs to personally come to grips with the fact Jesus suffered and died because of what I have done. And to help us do that this evening, we're going to look at a surprising passage, not one from the New Testament, but one from the Old Testament. Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 22, which was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. This is the psalm Jesus quoted from the cross, and it really is a unique passage because it gives us insight into the inner experience of Jesus as he suffered for us. And this is an amazing prophecy being written a thousand years before the cross. So Psalm 22 really is an important and unique text. So if you've got a Bible, turn there, Psalm 22. And as you're turning there, let me say a little bit about this psalm. While the content of this psalm is unique because it so directly touches on the death of Jesus, the structure of Psalm 22 is not unique. Uh, this is one of a large category of psalms called laments. And laments are psalms that express grief or sorrow. And actually, lament is the largest category in the book of Psalms. About a third of the psalms are laments. Now, laments are usually made up of five elements, and our passage is no different. It has the same five elements that characterize lament. And so tonight we're going to see five points, each of which corresponds to one of the elements of lament, and each of which will teach us some really important things about Jesus' death. We start with our first point, in which we see a desperate cry. Now, look at Psalm 22, and we'll begin with the title. It says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Our passage was written by King David. He lived about a thousand years before Jesus' birth. And it is addressed to the choir master. So this was a song that was to be sung as part of Israel's public worship. We don't know what David meant by the doe of the dawn. It's probably a musical reference, but we, we don't know. Now, because David is the author, we would expect this psalm to reflect some aspect of David's own life and personal experience. And there were many times in David's life when he faced desperate situations and really strong adversaries. And we cannot say with any certainty which of these experiences stands behind this psalm. Whatever it was, David here uses powerful poetic imagery to describe a, a, a terrible situation of personal anguish. And yet, what David described poetically about his life was used by God to prophesy events that would come true very literally in the life of David's great descendant, Jesus, as Jesus went through an infinitely worse situation of terrible anguish on the cross. The psalm begins like this. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a desperate cry. And laments often begin with such cries. 
Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or Psalm 74 says, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Now when we see words like this in the Psalms, we need to remember that they are giving us an honest description of the feelings of the psalmists as they describe the hardest events in their lives. Feelings that we also may experience when we go through really difficult things. You know, it's easy as believers to imagine that everything in life should work out nicely and comfortably for us and to think that, well, if God allows tragedy to befall me, surely he will soften the blow so that I won't have to face the same kinds of pain that unbelievers face when bad things happen to them. But friends, that's not how it works. Sometimes God's people suffer terrible calamities, and our suffering then is real. It's profound. And God forbid, should we experience such things, we may find that as we suffer, we are not conscious of any great supernatural comfort. We may not be cognizant of any extra measure of hope or peace. We may even begin to feel like God has forgotten us or forsaken us. And that's what the psalmists were feeling when they wrote laments like this. But they had a biblical promise. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, The Lord your God goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And Hebrews 13 tells us that promise applies to believers in Christ today. So when we go through hard times, when we may feel like God has forsaken us, we need to know that in actuality, He has not. Though we may not feel His presence or comfort in the way that we would hope we would, He is still with us, He is still in control, He is still working out all things for His people's good. And so David, in verse 1, gives voice to his feelings that he is feeling distant from God as he suffers, even though actually God wasn't really that far from him. But verse 1 doesn't just speak about David's perception of his troubles. It also foretold what would actually happen to Jesus on the cross. Because three hours into his crucifixion, after already enduring the worst brutality that humanity could inflict, now starts the worst part of Jesus' suffering. So Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And as this supernatural darkness descended on Judea, we're told that Jesus cried out with a loud voice these words from verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' words explain the supernatural phenomenon happening around him. Why has the sky turned dark? Because on the cross, Jesus actually was forsaken by God. Now, we've got to be careful when we talk about this. When we say that Jesus was forsaken, we are not saying that there was a rupture in the Trinity. We are not saying that the Son ceased to be God. But we have to remember Jesus is truly God and truly man. And the man Jesus, in his true deity and humanity, is here forsaken by the Father. You say, well, I don't understand that. I'm not sure any of us can. But the Father, indeed, in some way, turned away from his beloved Son. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. In that moment, Jesus, the sinless one, became the personification of sin. He took your sin and my sin upon himself. And more than that, he bore the penalty that our sin deserved, the penalty that you and I should have borne. 
Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse described in 2 Thessalonians 1 as the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. The ultimate condemnation we deserve for our sin is eternal separation from the love, grace, kindness, and mercy of God. Being plunged only into darkness, despair, and agony. And for three hours on the cross, Jesus, in some way we cannot grasp, bore the fullest measure of that so that we might never taste it. And in that terrible situation, Jesus cries out with this cry of desperation. But we come now to our second point in which we see a terrible hardship. One of the striking things about the Psalms of Lament is that in them, the psalmists speak to God honestly about their problems. And that's a great example for us when we go through hard times. I think often we pray timid prayers when we should pray bold prayers. Often we hold back saying what we think when we forget God already knows what we think. Now, of course, the psalmists don't descend into blasphemy, but they honestly pour out their hearts before God, and that's what David does here. He pours out his problems to God, and he identifies three sets of problems. The first set involves the cruelty of his enemies. First, they revile him. Look at verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David describes those who verbally abuse him. But what he writes powerfully and prophetically depicts the reviling that Jesus endured on the cross. Jesus was insulted by those who were crucified alongside him, by people who walked by his cross and were told in Matthew and Mark that those folks wagged their heads at him just like is foretold here in verse 7. And he was insulted by the religious leaders of Israel who came out to gloat and watch as he died. And Matthew tells us that these leaders reviled Jesus like this. They said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. They blasphemed Jesus with the very same words foretold in this psalm a thousand years earlier. Words that note that Jesus trusts God, but suggesting that God wants nothing to do with Jesus. His enemies mock him cruelly. More than that, they brutalize him. Look at verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David describes his enemies as being like vicious wild animals. Bashan was a region known for its strong, massive cattle, and lions are about as ferocious as beasts come. So this is an apt description of insatiable, powerful enemies who are roaring for Jesus' blood. Now, we don't know which enemies David faced when he wrote this, but as we think about these words' application to Jesus, it's very clear. In Matthew 27, we're told Jesus was turned over to a battalion of Roman legionnaires, the cruelest and most brutal soldiers in history. The word battalion can mean there were as many as 600 of these mighty, bloodthirsty soldiers who mocked and savagely beat and viciously whipped Jesus. But that's not all. Look at verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. 
Now, when we think of dogs today, we think of cute pets. That's not how ancient people saw them. To them, dogs were unclean, predatory creatures who scavenge among the dead. And so David here says that he is as good as dead because he is surrounded by people who are unclean and vicious like dogs. He says, who are they? They are a company of evildoers. Now, the Hebrew word translated company here is often translated congregation elsewhere in the Old Testament. It speaks often of a religious community. Now, how this applied to David, we don't know. But prophetically, this speaks clearly of the Jewish religious leaders of the first century who purported to be a congregation of the righteous, but who showed themselves to be a congregation of the wicked by their conspiring Jesus' death. So there are many powerful, vicious enemies arrayed against David and Jesus. And what do these enemies do? We'll look at verse 16. It says, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Again, we have no idea how any of this connects to David. But this is one of the most powerful prophecies that points to the death of Jesus. This language of piercing hands and feet sounds like crucifixion, does it not? And yet these words were written 400 years before crucifixion had been invented as a way to kill. This is an amazing prophecy because it so clearly foretells Jesus' death in these verses. John's Gospel and Colossians 2 tell us Jesus was nailed to his cross. Moreover, any crucifixion would entail Jesus being stretched out in a way that would make his bones visible. Again, history tells us how the Romans would crucify their victims naked, publicly exposing them and humiliating them and degrading them. And what was done with the victim's clothing? Well, it was seized as a reward by the soldiers who oversaw the crucifixion. And this is indeed what happened at Golgotha. John's Gospel tells us Jesus' clothing was evenly distributed among the four soldiers who kept watch at his cross. But Jesus had one piece of clothing that could not be evenly distributed. He had a tunic, and for that the soldiers cast lots. All four Gospels tell us this. It's like throwing dice today, and it literally fulfills this thousand-year-old prophecy. And so here we see the first set of problems the psalmist has, the cruel mocking and violence of his enemies which points to Jesus' death on the cross. But David also describes a second problem here, an inner emotional and physical anguish. Look back at verse 6. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. David notes in all that he has endured that it's, it's like he's become almost less than human because of all the indignity that he has suffered. And again, what was true of David is so much more true of Jesus. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the cross that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Reduced to such wretchedness, people despised Jesus, they didn't even want to look at him. Another messianic psalm, Psalm 69 says this, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. 
heartbreaking, humiliation, and isolation. And not only is there this great emotional sorrow prophesied here, but great physical stress as death approaches. Look at verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. This is some of the strongest language in the whole Bible to describe what it feels like as death approaches. This is what Jesus must have felt on the cross as the hours went by. As his muscles and joints ached because of the unnatural stretching the cross imposed on his body. As his life began to slip away, feeling like water that's all poured out. He feels drained. He feels melted. He feels dried up like a broken piece of dry pottery. And his parched tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. And so he cries out in John 19, I thirst. Jesus suffered emotionally and physically, but that isn't all he suffered because now we see the third problem described in this psalm, a problem related to God. At this point in the psalm, David says, verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. Now for David, this forms the basis of an urgent plea. For rescue. He's saying to God, if you don't rescue me from this, you're sending me to my death, into the very dirt of the grave. But for Jesus, of course, he knows that it must be this way. For he had prayed at Gethsemane, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He had asked, is there any other way? Can the cross be avoided? And the answer is clear, coming from the Father, no. He must go to the cross, and so Jesus submits to that. He obeys. And so for Jesus, the final words of verse 15 are not a plea for escape. They are rather a description of the reality of his situation. His life is hastening to its end. And ultimately, that is not because of the Jewish religious authorities. It is not because of the Roman soldiers. Ultimately, Jesus dies because that is the eternal plan and purpose of God. Peter said in Acts 2 to a big crowd on Pentecost, Jesus, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Jesus is ultimately the plan of God. It is God the Father who is bringing Jesus to the end of his life. Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And yet, while Jesus has submitted to this plan, there is an immense sorrow as he dies. Because Jesus doesn't just endure the mockery and the pain inflicted by his enemies, but he also endures the Father turning his face away. He endures the curse of God's wrath, and he bore it alone. And that brings us back to the very beginning of the psalm and the cry of verse 1. Look again at verses 1 and 2. David writes these words, Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David had prayed day and night constantly about his problems. And these aren't meek and mild prayers. The word groaning here is elsewhere translated in this psalm, roaring. This is an intense cry of anguish. A cry brought day and night, and yet, David finds no answer. God does not give him the peace he seeks. And so he asks, why? 
not so much seeking a reason, but almost as a rhetorical way of saying, where are you, God? And if that's how David felt, even though God had not truly forsaken him, then how much more sorrowful must Jesus have felt in that moment when the Father actually turned away? He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, and he did it alone, in pure love for us and in total obedience to the Father. And so what we see in these verses is a stark, unflinching, prophetic picture of what the cross was like for Jesus. The humiliation, the violence, the sorrow. He endures hardship beyond our worst imaginings. But now we come to a third point, and we find here a profound declaration of trust. The Psalms of Lament include honest descriptions of the psalmist's troubles, but laments are not expressions of grumbling. Far from it. The psalmists bring their problems to God because they trust God. Because despite their terrible circumstances, they know that God reigns, that God is sovereign, and that God's good purposes will stand. And so even in Psalm 22, as David talks about this horrible situation he's in, and as we think about the even worse situation experienced by Jesus, we also see here a powerful declaration of trust in the Lord. Even though things seem impossibly awful, even though the, the Lord seems distant, David says this in verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. David takes his eyes off his problems and looks now to God, and he sees God is not wronging him. No, he's reminded of God's glorious holiness, that God is good and righteous. And as David contemplates this, he remembers he's not the only person that has poured out his problems to God in the past. He's an Israelite. And the Israelites worship and praise God because of who he is and because God faithfully answers his people's prayers. And as David considers this, he remembers God's mighty deeds of faithfulness in the past. Look at verse 4. He says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He thinks about previous generations, the patriarchs and Moses and Joshua and the generation that took the promised land. They trusted the Lord and they had never found their hope misplaced because God is always faithful to his people and his promises. And so God saw to it they were not put to shame. Yes, they had enemies who mocked them and who hurt them, but their enemies' gloating was not the final word written over them. Ultimately, God saw his people's faith vindicated in full. And so although he feels alone, David continues trusting in the Lord, believing that God would rescue him from this situation that he was enduring. But his trust in God wasn't just grounded in the pages of the history books, because now he looks to his own life, and he remembers how God has been at work in his life. Look at verse 9. He says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. As David looks at his life, he sees God's gracious hand throughout it. Friends, this is a good thing for us to do from time to time. To think about all the times and ways God has been faithful to us in the past. And as David does that, he thinks about how from his childhood God had been faithful to him. How he had grown up in a God-fearing home. How he had trusted in God even as a child and throughout his life how God had been his hope. And so even though David feels the cruelty of his enemies and the terrible situation he's in, although he feels far from God, he doesn't abandon hope. He remembers who he is. He's someone who trusts the Lord. Well, what about Jesus? 
despite enduring worse mockery and worse beatings and scourging and crucifixion, despite actually being forsaken by the Father, Jesus kept trusting his Father, trusting his plan, trusting his will, believing that despite his situation, his end would not be disgrace and death, but vindication and triumph. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 23. Christ suffered for you. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Throughout his entire ordeal of the passion, Jesus never sinned once. Not in thought, not in word, not in deed. He exemplified his own teaching. When they did evil to him, he didn't return evil back. Instead, he endured it silently because he was trusting a higher court than the Sanhedrin. He was trusting a more just judge than Pontius Pilate. He was trusting that, as Abraham said, the judge of all the earth will do right. He trusted himself to his father. And based on what we see in this psalm, I think perhaps we see here the thoughts Jesus had that reinforced this. The father had always been faithful to his faithless and sinful people. Certainly the father would be faithful to his sinless son. The father had been involved in Jesus' life from from sending him into the world and superintending over his miraculous birth, directing every aspect of his teaching and miracles. The father had always been faithful to Jesus throughout his life. And so as he hangs on the cross and looks out and sees the darkness that indicates the father has forsaken him, Jesus trusts his good purposes right up to the end. For his last words, according to Luke 23, are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He dies trusting the Father. And so we see here a powerful declaration of trust in God. And this leads to our fourth point, in which we see a prayer for help. As David suffers, feeling abandoned by God, he trusts the Lord, and so he prays. And he prays two things. First, he prays to experience God's nearness once more. Look at verse 11. He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. As trouble closes in, he seeks God's nearness. The trial's hard enough, but the feeling of isolation from God's presence is too much to bear. He needs to know that God is with him, because nobody else can help him in this moment. He needs the Lord's presence. He reiterates this later in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Again, he wants to experience that God is near him. But this then leads to the second prayer that he prays, verse 20. Deliver my my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Once more, David describes his enemies using this language of wild animals. And he begs God, spare me from their hands, spare my life. And as he's praying this, suddenly, everything changes for David. Look at verse 21, the end of it. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Something happens. David perceives God as distant no longer. Something happens, and David sees his enemies are defeated, and his life is spared. Despite his circumstances, even though it seemed like God was far off, God heard David's prayer and graciously delivered him. Now, how does this relate to Jesus? Jesus was in a lot worse situation than David was. Jesus wasn't under the threat of death. He was actually dying. 
He wasn't just feeling like God was distant. The father had actually turned away from him, and yet he trusted the father. And so what did he do? He also prays. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. When we think of Jesus praying, we usually think of Gethsemane, where he prayed vigorously. But Jesus surely prayed beyond that as he suffered and from the cross. And from the words of this psalm, it seems that Jesus prayed for a swift end to his suffering, that he might once more enjoy the full, beautiful communion with the Father in which he had previously delighted, that he might be delivered from the mockery and the violence that he was suffering. Jesus prayed, Hebrews says, to him who was able to save him from death. Not that he might avoid death, because he had submitted to the Father's will. He knew he had to die. But he prayed to be delivered through death. He prayed to enjoy triumphant vindication in resurrection. And indeed, even though the Father turned away from Jesus for three hours, and even though Jesus bore the wrath of the Father, when his mission was accomplished, Jesus' prayer was answered. Not as David's prayer was answered. Jesus was not spared death because Jesus had to die to pay for our sin. But Jesus declared in John 19, it is finished, and he died. And yet his prayer was answered, because his death was not the end. Yes, it seemed like the Romans had killed him. Yes, it seemed like the Jewish religious authorities had vanquished him. Yes, the tomb seemed like the end. But the Father vindicated the Son and delivered him from death, not on cross, on the cross, but on Easter morning. Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus triumphed. He triumphed over his human enemies. He triumphed over Satan, sin, and even death. Jesus' prayer was answered just like David's was. And this leads us to our last point in which we see glorious public praise to the Father. Psalms of lament don't just bring the problems of the psalmist to God. They don't just confess trust in the Lord and offer up a prayer for deliverance. They include one last component, a component of expectant faith, which says, Lord, I believe you're going to answer my prayer. And when you do, I'm going to offer you public praise. Now, this is not an attempt to bargain with God. This is proper. Because the right response when God answers our desperate prayers is to publicly thank him. And in the final words of our psalm, David, recognizing that God has answered his prayer, now describes the public praise that he's going to offer to God. Look at verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. 
for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. See, David sees God has delivered him and he says, I'm going to praise God. A praise that will echo through the nations, that will echo down through the generations. But once more, what David says here speaks prophetically about Jesus and describes the glorious results of Jesus' death on the cross. David says he's going to fulfill his vow to praise God in the congregation. Earlier we saw a congregation of evildoers. Now we see a different congregation, the congregation of the righteous. And who's in it? Well, first David speaks of Israelites, the offspring of Jacob. But he anticipates a time when others will be added, when all the ends of the earth will worship God, when the nations, the Gentiles, will be added. And how does this come to pass? In the death of Jesus. We saw last week when the temple veil was torn at Jesus' death, the Old Testament system of worship centered on Israel stands fulfilled. A new system has begun, a new order in which it has been revealed in Ephesians 3 that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A new order has begun in which it can be said to the Gentiles, now you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, the death of Jesus forms a new congregation, a new people comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles. It forms the church, a body made up of people from every ethnicity, of every socioeconomic group, and of every generation. David speaks in our passage about those who've gone down to the dirt, the dead, and the posterity of future generations also will honor him. See, friends, in Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to the Old Testament saints, to believers who died before us, to us, and to all who come after us. Death is not the end of our relationship with God in Christ because ultimately God will raise his people from the dead just like he raised Christ. And all his people from every generation will live together in unending bliss, in a glorious eternal congregation that loves the Father and worships him through the Son. That is what Jesus' death forms. A congregation not just of worshipers, but a congregation whom Jesus regards as being his own brothers. A congregation of those adopted into God's family. Verse 22 here is quoted in Hebrews 2, which says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he quotes this verse. And then he says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Friends, by his death, Jesus makes a new family, a family of brothers and sisters, a family forgiven of our sins, a family liberated from slavery to sin, a family that has victory over the spiritual forces of darkness, a family with the glorious eternal high priest in Jesus who has brought us to the Father. A family invited to enjoy an eternal banquet. Verse 26, David talks about people eating. He's talking about giving a thanksgiving offering. A meal that would be enjoyed by the community. 
And he says he wants to do this so that other people who are afflicted might be strengthened to endure in faith for the rest of, of their lives. But again, what's true of David is so much more true of Jesus. Because Matthew 8 says Jesus is going to establish a glorious banquet where many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. A place where we who are today afflicted by hardship and sin will find everlasting peace and encouragement where we really will live forever. And how is this possible? Because in verse 24 it says, He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Because though the Father turned away from Jesus for a moment, he did not turn away forever. Because the Father heard Jesus' prayers and answered them and raised him on the third day. And so by his death, Jesus is able to say here in his resurrection, praise the Father in the establishment of his church, which is comprised of people from all nations and generations who have found refuge from the affliction of sin in him alone. Friends, we have been saved because Jesus died on the cross for us. And so tonight, let us remember Jesus and his death. You know, Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross shows us God's love. It shows us the love of God for ruined sinners, to give us a way out of the condemnation we deserve, and to bring us into his own family and everlasting joy. But the cross also shows us the justice and wrath of God. If we take sin lightly, we need to look at what Jesus suffered because that shows us the penalty our sin truly deserved. Tonight, I want to say to you, if you have never turned from your sin and trusted Christ, you need to know you are in a collision course with the very same wrath that afflicted Jesus on the cross. There is only one path of salvation. And Jesus explained it in Mark chapter 1 when he said, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your life of sin. Trust in Jesus as your Savior, as the Lord of your life. Because his death and resurrection is the only way that you can be delivered from the power and penalty of sin. But tonight, if you do know Jesus, then rejoice. Because the cross shows you the fullest measure of God's love for you. The Father loved you so much that he turned aside from his beloved Son and poured condemnation on him so that he could save you. Jesus loved you so much, he endured the horrors of the cross and the very wrath of the Father so that you might never experience them, so that you might be part of this congregation who he regards as his brothers and sisters. And friends, that was the joy that Jesus saw as he faced his death, that he would bring me and you and many other sons and daughters to glory. And considering that, Hebrews 12 says, Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And so tonight, let us respond by honoring the Father and the Son in the way that Psalm 22 says we should. Praise him. Glorify him. Stand in awe of him. And remember him who loved us and gave himself for us.